Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes a news story captivates the public's attention and won't let go, which is what happened in a case out of Chicago, a case people called the crime of the century. The trial became a media circus, and the wealthy defendants quickly became household names. Indeed, their lawyer, even before he stepped into the courtroom, was already kind of a celebrity. Your Honor, I've been practicing law good deal longer than I ought to have. Anyhow, for 45, 46 years, during all that time, I've never tried a case where the state's attorney did not say it was the most cold-blooded, inexcusable case ever. The case was nearly 100 years ago, and the lawyer's name was Clarence Darrow. He would become even more famous the next year when he headed to Tennessee to defend a man who had broken the law by teaching students about evolution. But that was all in the future in 1924, when Darrow was hired to defend two teenagers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, who had killed a young family friend. Darrow, portrayed by the legendary actor Orson Welles in the 1959 movie Compulsion, did not contest the notion that the boys were guilty. He simply argued they should not be put to death. In the case of these immature boys of diseased minds, as plain as day, They say you can only get justice by shedding their last drop of blood. Isn't a lifetime behind prison bars enough for this mad act? The defense's argument in the case, and you heard a reflection of it there in the phrase disease minds, relied heavily on the idea that Leopold and Loeb must have had something wrong with them physically. Otherwise, why would they have done this terrible thing? These were kids from good families. Indeed, Nathan Leopold had been slated to attend Harvard Law School in the fall. The problem had to be their diseased minds. So to prove his point, Darrow brought in experts. These two doctors studied these boys for days. Randy Hutter Epstein is a doctor and author who has written about the budding obsession in the 1920s with hormones. And imagine that while they were doing all their tests, they x-rayed them, they interviewed them, they brought in this huge machine that looks a little like something that's in my boiler room of my home. It was called a metalometer. And as they were doing all this stuff, there were reporters, as we reporters tend to do, hovering around the outside, trying to peek in the windows, trying to get glimpses. Out of this observation came a major report, which, probably not surprisingly, discovered hormonal problems with both boys. The findings went something like this. One of the boys had a hardened pineal gland. We now know that that gland in your brain has to do with your circadian rhythms, you know, sleep and wake. At the time, it was thought that that gland has to do with something about morality and your inhibitions. The other boy, they said, had polyglandular syndrome. Basically, that means he had a lot of things wrong. They went to the judge. This was not a trial by jury. This was the judge sentencing them. And they basically said their hormones made them do it. And the judge said, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't really speak in legal ease, basically said, wow, you know, there is so much going on in endocrinology. This is fascinating. I'm fascinated with research that's unraveling the mysteries of the human brain and mind. This has nothing to do with these kids getting them off this murder trial. Each boy was given a life sentence plus another 99 years in jail. But one of the most striking things about the murder trial of Leopold and Loeb, medically speaking, 
is that less than a century ago, we knew very, very little about hormones and how they control our bodies and our brains. Insulin had only just been isolated, and the first diabetic patients were starting to be treated. A hundred years ago, no one could imagine buying pregnancy tests in the drugstore because we hadn't figured out how the hormone that's measured in the test actually works. But the excitement around hormones and their power did start to bubble up in the 1920s, around the time of the trial. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they were isolated and began to be better understood. But hormones were still largely a mystery. Randy Hutter Epstein, whose recent book is Aroused, the History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything, says that there was a notion at that time that hormones might be a cure-all, a personality corrector. And this was at a time when America was worried about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, gangsters like Al Capone, criminals like Bonnie and Clyde. And the thinking was, maybe hormones were the answer. Maybe they could fix moral failings. Most doctors, most people in the medical establishment were not going on this bandwagon of let's use hormones to fix society. But there was one very popular doctor who was a really good guy in some ways. He was a real doctor that promoted this theory. He was a professor at Columbia University. He did wonderful research on the parathyroids. That's what um, controls calcium in the body. But he became a huge self-promoter. I like to think that Lewis Berman, who had a Park Avenue practice back in the 1920s, if he were alive today, he would probably have his own TV show and a million Twitter followers. Berman thought adjusting hormones could make people more moral, more attractive. They wouldn't have to sleep so much. That, needless to say, didn't quite pan out. But the more we've learned about hormones and about what they really are and what they really do, the more we've learned that Berman was right to pay very close attention to them. A hormone is a chemical secreted from one gland that hits a faraway target. We don't mean far away like Boston to L.A. (laughs) We mean far away like the brain to the testes, Mm -hmm. far away from a very teeny tiny microscopic perspective. Mm -hmm. Today, when we're sending emails and connecting to specific people across the globe, we think that chemicals that have specific targets is no big deal. It's a huge deal. I like to consider hormones your internal Wi-Fi. Um, I actually don't understand how the internet works or how I send emails, but I do understand (laughs) hormones. I like the analogy. Um, I know that there's routers in my house to help with the Wi-Fi. We have chemicals in our body that work like routers. But think about it. Before the 1900s, everything in the body was thought to go along connections, travel along the nerves if it was a message. When the theory of hormones first came out, the response was, it can't be. Mm-hmm. It can't. I mean, there was no email then. You know, right, the thought that right. something could just go. Right. It was like, there must be tiny nerves you're not seeing. Mm-hmm. Chemicals have to travel along something. Mm-hmm. So um, you write a little bit about how we came to understand hormones in the first place. Uh, one of the experiments, these are crazy experiments because this is stuff going on inside people's bodies. And the only way we really figured it out is we did kind of crazy and somewhat disgusting things. Um, uh, So you talk about this experiment that took place around 1850 in Germany, I think. 
a guy took testicles of roosters and swapped them with other roosters. No idea you could do that. And he found something kind of remarkable. You want to talk about it? I love this experiment because, yeah, it's a wonderful story. Who doesn't like hearing about roosters <laughs> and testicles in the same story? There you go. But the wonderful thing about this, I always say, you know, the best scientists are not just the ones that answer the question correctly. The greatest scientists know the question to ask. Mm -hmm. So in 1848, this German doctor in his backyard, not a laboratory, asked this great question. Can these glands that secrete this mysterious substance, we had no idea what it was, can they work no matter where they are in the body? Mm -hmm. So he took a bunch of roosters in his backyard. He castrated some, and he saw, as he said, they were not chasing hens anymore. Mm -hmm. They got fat and lazy. That kind of is no big deal because farmers have been doing that for centuries, castrating their cattle and whatnot. But here's what he did. He took a testicle from one of his roosters and implanted it into the belly of another castrated rooster. So picture this if you actually want to picture this. <laughs> Here was this rooster with nothing between its drumsticks and yet a lone testicle floating within the loops of its intestines. Not something you want Quite to have for dinner tonight. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like don't order the chicken tonight. But what happened was, which was astonishing, that castrated belly testicled rooster became, as he said, the old rooster it used to be. Its comb got redder. It started chasing hens. It became invigorated. So he did one great thing and one not so great thing. He wrote a scientific article. That's the good thing because you should write down what you've done and have it documented. Right. But then he just kind of shoved it in some dusty library or wherever they shoved journals in 1848. And he kind of went on and did other things. Hmm. He basically defined what hormones are, these chemical secretions that can work from anywhere in the body and reach their target. But yet the field of endocrinology just didn't start for another half a century later until British scientists discovered his discovery. And it's interesting, you know, you were talking before about how hormones are a little bit like email, like they don't need to travel along a physical pathway. They can just sort of send the message out there and it'll be received by the recipient. And in some sense, I feel like what he was doing was by taking away the normal uh, place where the that hormone was going to go, this hormone that made the roosters want to like chase around the hens and stuff, um, he was really saying, like, no matter where you go, you can always pick up your phone and get your email. Exactly. Right? It's going to reach you where it's supposed to. And you can kind of throw in curveballs and it'll still find you. I mean, we take it for granted now. But think about it. If you're a diabetic and you have to take insulin, you don't have to have that insulin put into your pancreas in order then for the body to know right. where the insulin should go. You just give a shot of insulin, and it knows where to go. All these things we take for granted are really wonderful in terms of when you think about how our bodies work and communicate inside. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Randy Hutter Epstein, a doctor and the author of Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Uh, So when you say just about everything, what do you think they control that maybe people are not aware of? I think they control our behavior in ways that we don't realize. Now, that doesn't mean that we can then control them. That's Mm -hmm. always that toss-up, like, do they control us or can we control them? So one of the fascinating things I write about in the book is the, I call it like the I feel full hormone, Mm -hmm. and it's leptin. And this is a hormone that rises after you eat so that you feel full and you don't keep eating. The fascinating thing that we've learned, for instance, is people that have a defect in leptin, the way it works or actually are deficient in this hormone, Mm -hmm. they're voraciously hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. This isn't because they're not – it's not a genetic thing that makes them not burn calories What it does is it makes them feel compelled to eat. Hmm. So the fascinating thing from the hormone point of view is we're seeing that this is a hormone that controls behavior, not controls just burning calories Mm -hmm. or how quickly you put weight on. And is it true on the other side, too, that people who have a lot of leptin get full very fast so they stay thin? No, you know what what we're what we're seeing now, the fascinating thing with this research is one that we realize that your fat cells secrete it. So your fat cells are endocrine glands. They're okay. not sort of these blobs of oil that I always pictured. I always mm-hmm. thought a fat cell was like if you just took a little chunk of fat, like butter and right. put it in your body. No, they're kind of they're endocrine glands too, fascinatingly enough. And no, while there's probably leptin diets and all this stuff available, no, we're not there yet. We cannot just um, control our leptin, and it's not about just this one hormone. It, mm. We know that people that have a defect in it are voraciously hungry all the time. For most of us that don't have this defect, we know that there are many hormones involved in driving us to the refrigerator and not being able to say no when someone offers us dessert. Um, I talked before about uh, what we've learned in the last hundred years uh, about hormones and how that's changed society. Uh, pregnancy tests, which, uh, of course, are now cheap and over the counter. And you've got birth control of, of different sorts. I don't think any of those things, right, were understood. And they are all about people's hormones. Absolutely. None of everything you said would be non-existent if we did not understand hormones. Hmm. The wonderful story that I like to write about in terms of the pregnancy test is the fact that one of the crucial hormones that has to do with the pregnancy test, HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, was really um, a lot of the landmark studies was done by a woman, Dr. Georgiana Jones, who did this initial study while she was just a medical student. She did show that the placenta, again, we probably thought the placenta wasn't doing that much in those days, that it secretes this crucial hormone. And that is the hormone that skyrockets after pregnancy. And that's what your pregnancy tests look for. And the way the pregnancy test worked in before all this stuff with HCG was you would take urine from a pregnant woman because we knew that pregnant women were secreting whatever this pregnancy hormone was in mm-hmm. their urine. Okay. So woman would pee, you'd take her pee, you'd inject it into a rabbit or a rat, you'd wait 10 days, then you'd cut open your rabbit or your rat 
and you'd look at their ovaries. If their ovaries of the rabbit or rat on in, on inspection changed in very particular ways, hmm. that meant the woman was pregnant. Um, one side note is that I was asking my mother about this because she gave birth to my brother and sister in the 50s. I guess it was before my brother or after. It wasn't any of the pregnancies. She got the note that she was not pregnant, but she owed them $3 for the rabbit. <laughs> Whoa. That, yeah, things have changed, I would say. Um, this is a related but different question. If you watch television commercials now, you get a sense that testosterone or testosterone deficiency is a problem now. I wonder, is that true? Is that, is this like a new, is this a new thing? I mean, just give me a sense of like what's going on. There's lots of things that men can get to like boost their testosterone. Absolutely. So is it new? No. Um, Not surprisingly for, oh, ever since we started studying hormones, one of the main focuses, what can we do to boost men's libido? What can we do to help men? Hmm. What can we do that's either real or not real? Because we can make a lot of money luring men in to say, this will boost your libido. Hmm. So yeah, I'm not a big sports watcher, but I did just so I could see all the testosterone commercials. Here's what we know. If you're a guy and you're middle age and you are truly low in testosterone, that means going to a doctor who goes to an accredited lab, takes two blood tests, and both of those verify that you are truly low, which could be about the numbers that they throw around are like 300 nanograms per deciliter, under that, a number under that. If you start taking testosterone, you it will boost your libido. You will feel, feel more energetic. For men in that middle range, um, which would be, again, like 300 to 900 nanograms per deciliter, going from one normal to a higher normal, no studies have shown that it truly makes a difference in mm. terms of libido, in terms of they're, they're looking at aging men, too, who might have trouble with mobility. Going from a lower normal to a higher normal doesn't show to really make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like you don't think there's an epidemic necessarily of, you know, in 2018, of uh, low testosterone sweeping the nation. No, I don't think so. What some doctors think is there's an epidemic. I wouldn't even say I think there's been a epidemic probably the past hundred years of middle aged men thinking that, you know, what what can I get injected or what can I do to boost my libido? Mm -hmm. So maybe I don't know if you call it an epidemic or just a chronic situation. Hmm. But I do think that some doctors are saying that there are some elderly men that probably are low testosterone who aren't getting checked, that hmm. could probably feel better if they did get checked for testosterone. So we might be underdiagnosing some people, but this silly test where they say to a man, wow, you're 55, are you tired at the end of your day of work? That actually is a question on this survey. Hmm. That could be a signal you're low T. I think it could be a signal that <laughs> you put in a good work day. Right. You're a little that tired. You're a human. <laughs> yeah, it could be a signal that you're a human. When you step back from all of this uh, research that you've done on hormones, why do you think it is that 
many people know so little about them and that we so much connect them with sex and, you know, estrogen and testosterone. And like, as we've been talking about, there's so many things, uh, you know, from diabetes to weight that that have to do with your hormones. Um, But why have hormones been this kind of, I don't know, passed over forgotten area in some ways in the public imagination? I think we tend to focus on these huge bodily changes, you know, girls getting breasts Mm -hmm. and boys changing and puberty and all the physical changes. And we grow up hearing, it's your hormones. Don't worry. Your body's changing. I know you feel awful about yourself. It's just your hormones. So we tend then to have these blinders on of what our hormones are. And we also, because of some of the work that's gone into menstruation and pregnancy, we tend to think, oh, it's just a woman's issue. She's in a bad mood, must be her hormones. But, you know, we're all, we all go through these hormonal swings. Testosterone goes up and down during the day. I'm not discounting that women do honestly have, for many women, a few days a month during their menstrual cycle where they may feel really off and angry. I'm discounting that hormonal can also tend to mean, oh, God, she's a stupid woman shouting mm-hmm. things that she doesn't mean. Nope. Sometimes when I was menopausal or menstrual, if that's a word, I probably was angrier and shouted things. But, yep, I meant them all. You know, it doesn't get us <laughs> – doesn't get women stupider. For the record, hormones do not make women stupider. We might be crankier at times, but we're not stupider. Randy Hutter Epstein is an adjunct professor at Columbia University and a lecturer at Yale University. She's also a doctor and author of Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Randy, thank you so much. This is great. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I had so much fun speaking with you. In the early 20th century, when the science of hormones was hugely exciting, there were lots of quacks and charlatans who got on the bandwagon. But only one quack invented a goat testicle impotence cure, and cure is in quotes here. He also ran one of the first radio stations in the country and almost became governor of Kansas. We'll have more about him on our website, innovationhub.org. 